Hey, good evening, everyone. Uh, live from our home studio here in North Minneapolis. Uh, this is the weekly edition of Bright Lights, our uh, weekly excursion into the world of achievement, achievement through goal setting, achievement through hard work, uh, good decision making, tenacity, and all those good things. And we do focus on achievement. And what we seek to do is to introduce you to achievers and hear their stories and the things they have to had to overcome uh, to get where they are and share that with you and share some light on that. Thus, the title Bright Lights. Uh, so now, and, and what I like about Bright Lights, to be honest with you, uh, if you pay attention, especially when they're talking about the black community, uh, most of the things that they're talking about to our children and our children are so important and special to me, has to do with all the obstacles they have to overcome, all the unfairness in the world, and no one is giving them positive messages. And I'm here to give everyone, especially our children, a positive message because I do believe that they can achieve anything they set their minds to, and I want them to know that. I want them to know that we are here to help them achieve their goals, and we just want to show them how to do it. So, uh, but before we get to our guest tonight, and I'm very excited about it, a couple of things. Well, first thing is uh, I, I'm finally back in the gym after, what, 16, 18 months or so. And uh, actually, you know, they had closed the gym down and, you know, a lot of crazy things, working hard, going out to dinner and everywhere you go, there's food and things like that. But I always promised myself a couple of things in my old age. Uh, first, I wouldn't get old and fat and, and with my stomach hanging over my belt. And secondly, I would never ret retire. Uh, as I explained it to my wife, I do not want to coast to the finish line. When, when I get to the finish line, I want to be running full speed. And so those are the two things I promised myself. So I've been in the gym every day this week and I said to my wife again, I'm going to do it for 21 straight days because that's how you break bad habits, watching uh, what I eat. And uh, hopefully you'll see a difference here. Or at least I'll see a difference, feel a difference. And I, I, I needed more energy. And it's kind of ironic, I guess, uh, counterintuitive, uh, that the more you uh, expend energy in exercising, uh, the more energy that you have. And so that's the way that work is kind of consistent. And many of you know me, I, I got this uh, Southern Baptist background. It's kind of consistent with the teachings of Jesus, which seem counterintuitive a lot of times, uh, like uh, love thy enemy. Uh, it's better to give than receive. And so it's all consistent with that. And we'll get into that sometimes and even bring in some type of scientific laws and principle to that uh, particular item. Now, like I say, before we uh, get started with our guest tonight, uh, I talked about three things. The first thing is my exercise. The second thing is uh, we've had some serious uh, incidents in Minneapolis. And I'll start with uh, three of our young children shot in the head. People, what are we doing? And I don't want to hear a lot of excuses from anyone excusing that behavior. And we really need to do something about it. And I'll talk about that uh, a, a, a little later also. And then there was this uh, 10 people shot, two people killed, 
at a nightclub in downtown Minneapolis. And, you know, that's got to stop. But here's the thing, and I've been consistent in this. There are no short-term solutions to this thing. There are no easy solutions. I hope I'm wrong. But in my opinion, uh, the best thing we can do now, hope for, is basically to stop the bleeding while we come up with long-term solutions that get to the root causes. And I've been fairly consistent about what I think are the root causes and things we need to do. First, economics. Uh, I preach economic justice. Uh, I want to see people with money in their pocket, enough money where they can send their children to college, enough money where they can take the family out to eat, enough money where if their children need something, they can provide it. Now, having said that, uh, I tell everyone uh, and with my children, uh, children need to hear no. Even if you can do it for them, just say no to them sometime. And I'm just so happy that my parents said no to me. Uh, I'm not happy about the things they said no to. Uh, they said no to a bicycle because they thought me and my brother, we'd be out on the road and get hit by a car. And they said no to a BB gun. And, uh, of course, you know why they are because we were bad little kids. Well, we were just being kids. And then probably the, the toughest thing of all, they said no to Chuck Taylor uh, uh, Converse All-Star tennis shoes. So normally uh, when we were in gym, just about everybody had Converse All-Stars uh, on. And I had the $2 Kent dollar store sh uh, shoes that I, I tried to paint stars on that look like Converse, but it, it, it never worked. And in fact, to this very day, I cannot draw a star. And I'm a pretty good artist too, but I can't draw a star. So it's good to say no uh, to our children sometimes. But here's the thing. Uh, I've been pretty straight on what I thought we need to do to get to the root cause. And I've been pretty straight on the fact that unless we get to the root cause, there's no solution to these things. And I know it's hard. It's going to take time. But here's the thing. I believe in my heart, soul, and mind we can do this. Uh, once again, economic development, money, uh, wealth creation, generation wealth creation, quality education. And when I say quality education, I'm talking about education of the poorest and most needy and those from the most, and I, I really don't like this phrase, but, but I'll use it uh, because I haven't found a better one to help everybody understand what I'm talking about, at risk, uh, those from at risk environments. Uh, we really need to find out a way to educate those children. And we'll get back to, because a lot of people point at charter schools and, and the success they're having, but there is a set of our children. Well, let me say this. If a child is in charter school, nine times out of 10 at least, that means that the parent is care about their education and is involved in their education. The challenge, I think, is those children that's from those tough situations where the parents may not be involved in the situation. The parents are facing all kinds of difficulty and stress and from stress and trauma and self-medicating. What? How do we educate those children? And once again, even though it's challenging, I know it can be done. And how do I know that? Uh, uh, we work with uh, Reverend McAfee and the New Salem uh, Church uh, to start a charter school. And we took those type of children and we educated them. And I think Reverend McAfee had pointed out one time that at the end of the school year, uh, those children were scoring in the 85 percentile uh, nationally. And so the education is another uh, part of it. And then 
family, uh, we really need to uh, understand the importance of two parents, families, and I'm just going to be uh, 100, as they say, the importance of dads in the homes. And once again, being 100, and I'm going to go straight to that one too. It might not be politically correct, marriage. And uh, we need to start marrying the mothers of our children. And uh, as men, you know, it, that's how we get our satisfaction. At least that's how I get mine by taking care of my family and my children. And it's not about us. So we really need to start thinking about, uh, we, we need to work towards the goal of, of two parents, family, and marrying uh, the mothers of our children. And once again, what I found out, and, and I'll wrap this up, get our guests on, is that it's pretty difficult to reach your peak as a man being single. And I know there are people out there disagree with me, but that's what I found. It made me a better man. It challenged me to change. It challenged me to not be so, so selfish. It challenged me to not look at my own goals. So, so let's repeat. Uh, business economic development uh, with the goal of creating generational wealth, uh, quality education, family, and last for me is just faith. Uh, that was the foundation. And, you know, other people might have other ways of creating a lighthouse in their life, which when you get off track, you know how to get back on track, get off course, you know how to get back on course. But that's what uh, my faith did for me. And, you know, we all go through those young stages and where we want to sow some wild oats and things like that. But faith is what uh, kept me was my lighthouse that guided me through things. So having said all of that, uh, and, and just one last thing as far as red causes, you know, and I'm, I'm talking mostly to my black community right now. A lot of times when we look at the uh, issues facing our communities, we tend to look out the window at the world and people and bad things and bad people. And I want to suggest to people who are out there who are trying to solve these issues, that we should spend more time looking in the mirror instead of looking out the window. And until we do that, that I don't think we're going to get to the root of a lot of these issues. And there's a lot of people out there who got us confused looking out the window at other people and how unfair life is and how bad all these bad people are. But I'm convinced that we have in our own control to solve these issues if we commit ourselves and willing to sacrifice to get them solved. So that's it for my introduction uh, uh, this evening. And let's bring on our guests. I'm very proud to have uh, on our, as our guest today, Iescus, uh, Iescus, uh, Felipe Iescus, uh, who has done a lot of work in the Latino community. And, you know, I'm just a diversity person. Uh, a lot of people talk diversity uh, like they talk love. A lot of people, when they say they love you, uh, they mean I love you as long as you're making me happy and you're doing what I want you to do. And once that, I'm not loving you anymore. Uh, and I'm saying that to say this. A lot of people who talk diversity say I'm all in favor of diversity as long as you agree with me and as long as you don't strongly disagree with me. But here's the thing. When I say diversity, I, I really mean it. Uh, I don't care what group you fall into. Uh, I welcome you and your opinions as long as you're respectful. Uh, personally, and as long as you obey the law. Those are the only two rules I have for people. 
Uh, and then otherwise, I'll sit and listen and talk and dialogue with anyone. And once again, just diversity of people, just race, color, creeds, religion, uh, we go for it. And I say that because, uh, like I say, Mr. Philippe uh, Yeskus, uh is from the Latino community, and I have a lot of great friends in, in that community. So uh, right now, uh, we'll bring on our guest, Mr. Philippe Yeskus. Uh Hey, good evening, Philippe. How you doing? Good, Lacey. Uh, thank you very much for the uh, invitation to be here tonight. Okay. Thank you for taking the time out to be here. Uh, okay. So first, Philippe, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and how did you end up uh, in Minnesota doing all the great work that you're doing? And uh, I think you took a, a you start, had a couple of stopovers for, uh, before you got here. So just tell us a little bit about your background and how you got to Minnesota. Yeah, definitely. Uh, well, I was born uh, in Mexico City. Um, and like many other people, you know, I was brought here to the U.S. by my parents when I was uh, very young. Um, so I ended up growing up in L.A. Um, and then um, from L.A., well, when I was in L.A., when I was at around 17 years old, my parents moved to Minnesota. And, uh, you know, I, you know, the following, you know, like the, the dream, right, like looking for a better opportunities. And um, I stayed in LA for another five years um, studying business administration. And then uh, at that point, my dad wanted to start a business and um, it just made sense for me to move to Minnesota for a year to help out and uh, you know get the business going. And um, we did, and uh, I ended up staying. <laughs> so I've been in Minnesota for a while now. Well, you sound like a lot of people who've been in Minnesota for a while and who was moving out every year for the past 20 years. So I, I, I kind of <laughs> understand that. Uh, tell us a little bit about your family. Oh, but, but before I go there, though, uh, you know, one of my pet peeves is just data and learning stuff. And uh, Mexico City, I've always wanted to go there because at one time I think it had it was had the largest population of any city uh, mm -hmm. in the world. And I just wanted, boy, 24, at that time, I think it was 24 million people. And I'm like, wow, a city with 24 million people. How was it growing up in Mexico City for you? Or do you still no, yeah, remember anything was... about that? <laughs> yeah, in fact, I think when I was still there, it was still considered the, large, the largest city in the world. Um, and I was still among the largest cities in the world. And um, it was super interesting. I, I mean, I feel very lucky that I, that I got to grow up there because, one, I had a lot of friends, you know, as a small child. But... I also got to see a lot of and experience a lot of things that I wouldn't have otherwise, you know, like I, ha I got to experience what it's like to get into a super crowded um, subway as the only means of transportation available, at the, you know, for us. And, um, you know, I got to see um, a lot of discrepancies like poverty and uh, wealth, like living next to each other, um, commerce, you know, like a lot of people, uh, you know, like just the different things that people do uh, to earn a living and uh, people that are taking advantage of opportunities, people that don't. So, and, and I think that happens everywhere too, but I'm, 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 I feel lucky that I got to see that there too. Okay. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about what you've been doing since you've come to Minnesota and it looked like a lot of that has to do with your background and experiences, what you saw growing up there. So let's talk a little bit about your education. You mentioned business management. I did a little uh, research on you as I want to do. Uh, and I saw some things about IT and engineering. Uh, I saw some stuff about inter 
intercultural communications. Why don't you fill us in on some of those type of uh, uh, educational endeavors that you've uh, achieved uh, in your lifetime? Yeah, those uh, those last two items you mentioned were part of my master's. I do have a master's of science in management um, that I got in Vermont. Um, and um, prior to that, I got my bachelor's in business administration. And, uh, you know, both degrees have been super helpful, um, obviously, in, in, in different ways and in different jobs that I've had. Uh, but most importantly, I think that uh, they have also served as examples, I think, to my daughter to show that if you want to get a college degree and further, you can, you know, as long as you want to. Oh, great, great, great. And, oh, now you are a father. Uh, you just have that daughter. And uh, tell us a little bit about your daughter. Yeah, uh, I'm a single dad of a 17-year, almost 17-year-old teenage daughter who uh, is great, uh, you know, as all parents say about their kids, uh, and just started driving a few months ago, which is, again, super scary. Yes. Uh, well, yeah, that's the most scary time for a parent. Uh, to me, at least, uh, I mean, just yep. out there driving, and you know, uh, you know, it takes 10, 15, 20 years to really learn how to drive well and defensively. And uh, <laughs> I, I understand that your, you and your daughter are into fast cars and things, also. Am I did I hear that correctly? Yeah, yeah, we're uh, we're both car people. Uh, so the business that I mentioned that I started with my dad was an auto repair shop. My dad was always a mechanic, and uh, you know, I grew up around cars. Um, and I somehow I passed that on to my daughter, or I don't know if it's she already she was born with that. Uh, but yeah, we're we're both you know uh, we we both watch uh, Formula One, and uh, we both like cars and especially fast cars. Um, in fact, uh, you know my daughter won't drive anything that is not supercharged. So <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait a minute, uh, teenager, just learning how to drive. And supercharge. I know, Lacey. Boy, <laughs> how do you sleep at night when, she, when she's out driving? I don't. Or she's out driving. <laughs> now, uh, interesting story. You know, my sons, they learn how to drive. And my oldest son, he wanted a Toyota Camry as a high school graduation present. And just a little story. We told him, I'm like, son, we're not going to buy you a camera because you're going to wreck a few cars before you learn how to drive, you know. Right. And and a true story, we bought him a little Pontiac. And I think the first time he went out driving, he came back with a, 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 a dented fender where he had an accident. So that's one of those stories. <laughs> there. Uh, my youngest one, though, I, I would uh, ride with him to school every morning to just observe how he drive. And then I got in this situation where I would let him ride in the car with him and his friends and see how he acted and stuff. And he was pretty good at that. Okay. So let's, uh, let's talk about your career a little bit. Uh, yeah. I saw where you worked at Pillsbury United communities and uh, just uh, a little inside. Also, I was a uh, advisor on oh. their charter school committee and uh, met a lot of people there. So tell us about your work there and, and how did you like it and the things that you did? Yeah. Uh, so when I was uh, over at Pillsbury, I was their policy person. And for the most part, I was working at the, the Wade House Center. You know, Pillsbury has five centers. Mm -hmm. uh, I was housed at, at Wade House. And so a lot of that work had to do with dir directly with issues that impact the Latino community, uh, not just in the Minneapolis or Twin Cities area, but um, 
also, in, we got in, a lot into greater Minnesota. So we worked a lot and formed partnerships with folks in um, Austin, um, Albert Lee, Worthington, uh, St. Cloud. Um, and so it was pretty neat. You know, every year we would do a sort of like a, a couple of tours around the state talking to people and about what, you know, issues that were affecting their lives. And, um, you know, we would create a legislative agenda based on on that. Oh, okay. Okay. That, that sounds like a great uh, job to have, as a matter of fact. And also, I see where you worked and still are working, I think, uh, the Minnesota Council on Latino Affairs. Tell us about your uh, job there. I, th I think I saw somewhere you were legislative and policy director there. Uh, yeah, I'm the former uh, senior legislative and policy director. And uh, the job essentially of the council is to represent the interests of the Latino community, uh, of all Latinos in Minnesota um, at the legislature. So, okay. um, and and it, it's the same essential, essentially the same model where uh, we partner with folks throughout the state, uh, listen to the needs of the community, uh, what issues or changes they would like to see. Um, and then we work with the legislature to make that happen. Uh, Gil, Gil, how many Latinos uh, are in Minnesota? Do you know? Uh Guess yeah, so Latinos comprise roughly around 6% of the total population. So currently there are over 300,000 Latinos in the state, 314,000. Okay. And I see also, I think I read somewhere as, actually I saw your video, uh, that you also stress uh, working as, a, as an advocate for family and businesses. Is that correct? Yep. My, so yeah, my focus there is uh, economic development and taxes. So a lot of my, my bills have to do with taxes, uh, consumer protection, agriculture, because um, Latinos are, you know, are big in agriculture too. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and economic development. So we represent not just the interests of Latino individuals, but also Latino businesses at the legislature. Okay. And taxes, that's a very broad subject area. Specifically, are you, uh, advocating for higher taxes, lower taxes, different types of taxes. What are you, what are you advocating over there at the Capitol, Philippe? Right. Uh, so when it comes to taxes, you know, like tax fairness, making sure that Latinos, all Latinos, benefit from, from uh, our, our tax programs, uh, tax, you know, tax breaks for businesses or Latino businesses. Uh, but most importantly, we look at the, the the tax code in general because you know the tax. The tax code isn't just specifically for Latinos or non-Latinos, right? Like taxes affect everyone, and we're part of it. We are part of everyone as Latinos, so um, you know we gotta be at the table too. Well, uh, on an aside and a personal note, Philippe, uh, I like low taxes. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think everyone does. <laughs> You're not alone. <laughs> uh, 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 are you responsible for my taxes going up or going down, Philippe? Do you know? Do we no, know? That's, that's no, up that, to the legislature. <laughs> okay. okay, so uh, you talked about business development, and uh, all businesses here in the country, in the world, especially here in the Twin Cities, also have uh, faced some very challenging times. Uh, due to COVID, uh, due to uh, the uh, riot protests and things like that, how were the uh, Latino uh, businesses impacted uh, by these two issues? Right. So as far as uh, COVID, um, obviously, you know, it depends on the business, right? Like some business 
did okay like if they were a bar uh, or, a, or a liquor store i guess and and others if they were restaurants you know they, they were not you know they, they were not doing well and and um and so for that you know the council was always making sure that people had the latest information as far as like small business loans as far as grants for you know for uh businesses affected um and so that was a lot of the what the council was doing and partnering with different organizations too that uh like economic development as, uh, organizations like ledc for example uh the latino economic development center uh to make sure that the information was reaching um every latino business in minnesota okay and how many do you have an idea how many businesses basically went out of business that they won't be able to recover you have any uh, we don't have that that data yet just because mm -hmm. you know some as 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 the economy starts to open up again some are still starting to open and so it's it's hard to say who 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 has closed for good and who's still like okay. ready to open or op starting to open okay so those businesses that are struggling what do you see as perhaps the one or two main things that we need to do uh now that we're coming out of this situation to help them uh basically rebuild get back to the solid ground even ground and even grow after that what are some of the maybe two or three things that uh we need to do for those businesses Right. I think the most obvious thing that we can do is uh, obviously support the businesses, right, by eating there or shopping there, uh, referring new businesses or uh, new business or new clients to them. Um, and then the other, you know, just forming that, creating that partnership where we're sharing information with them and um, and we're just sort of like part of that community where we, we, also, we can also ask them directly, like, what do you need, you know? Like, mm -hmm. what, what would be most helpful to you? Because I think every business is different. Obviously, there are issues specific to uh, industries, but also every business is in a different situation, I think. So. Okay. The, the other thing, yeah, well, let me ask you this. Is, are there any special needs that uh, the uh, Latino businesses need that other businesses do not need or, or, or that's greater for them than other businesses? I shouldn't yeah, put it like that, but are there any specific needs in that area i think one of the one of the uh themes that i that i've come across is uh insurance you know some mm. businesses that were affected by the protests for example uh, were not insured uh or their insurance didn't cover that type of damage um or you know and so I think that um, that type of education is is crucial, you know, as the people start to open up businesses and just making sure that they are fully insured and and insured against, you know, or for situations that uh, that might come up, um, and also information about uh, grants and you know loans, um, and 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 help in filling out those those. Uh, you know, walking them through that process, filling out those forms, because a lot of people just, they want to, you know, they only have time to focus on running their business, right? They don't have time to sit down for two hours, three hours and fill out forms that are in English and sometimes they don't speak English. Um, and so they, you know, we've seen that a lot of uh, Latino businesses have missed out on, on yeah. loans and grants. So given that insurance companies are not in the charity business and things like that, uh, what 
and I think I heard you mention some grants and things. What are the type of solutions uh, that are being provided to those businesses that didn't have insurance? Right. I think uh, mostly it's just, uh, you know, uh, informational resources, right? So if you don't have insurance, if you didn't have insurance and now you, you have to rebuild, uh, you know, these are the things that exist that could help you. And these are the things that are coming that will hopefully come uh, and the legislature will pass that will be helpful to you and your business. So just uh, it's just information that, that we can provide at this point and, um, and and trying to connect them with uh, financial resources that are being provided by local uh, governments. OK. And then one other thing you mentioned that you do work in outstate Minnesota and I, I kind of following in the paper, I do know that there are a lot of Latino uh, population in a lot of these outstate uh, cities. Uh, mm -hmm. What, first of all, what outstate city, besides m m the twin cities, what city has the uh, greater n number of Latinos besides the twin cities here? Right. I would probably go with uh, Worthington, Austin, uh, Pelican Rapids. So a lot of the agricultural um, cities um, okay. have a large pockets of Latino um, populations. Okay. And, uh, okay, well, uh, we might come back and talk about that some more on another interview. Uh, also, uh, we talked about the impact that COVID and the protest uh, had on the Latino businesses. And where I'm going with it, the protests uh, was... Uh, in response to the George Floyd killing and, and, and the call for police reform and things like that, law enforcement reform. Give me an idea of the number of Latinos in law enforcement, if you if you know, uh, in Minnesota and their participation. Right. Um, it's uh, honestly, I don't know the, of a survey that exists out there for as far as law enforcement, but, you know, but li little by little, the influx of Latinos into the into the force has been increasing. You know, like you, you have the new sheriff, for example, in, in Hennepin County, um, who is from Latino descent. Uh, you have some some officers within uh, MPD that um, they, they, they are strong partners uh, and with with the sheriff's department, too. that are strong partners with community members and they uh, attend. So we would partner with them when I was with Pillsbury. We would invite them to come and talk to community members around, you know, security and uh, how to stay safe, how to partner with the police, why they should, you know, community policing. Um, and so, but it, I, it's hard. I, I don't have a number uh, on that. Um, I think that the number that we have is more around uh, veterans. So we okay. currently have over 5,000 Latino veterans in Minnesota. Oh, wow. Uh, and these are veterans of uh, World Vietnam and, well, just Army veterans. Or so do you know which uh, skirmish or war? Because we don't declare war. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what skirmish most of them were uh, involved in? Right. I think uh, a lot of them were involved. Well, obviously, the older ones were involved in uh, World War II. I got, I got to meet uh, a veteran from World War II. Uh, in fact, I, I, uh, I went to D.C. with him. Um, and we met with Senator Klobuchar, um, and it was his first time going to D.C. and his first time seeing the memorial because he hadn't seen it. Mm -hmm. um, and his son is a, a Vietnam veteran, um, and at the time he was a commander of the Mexican-American 
a post in St. Paul. Okay. Um, and so, you know, we, we do have a network that we uh, veterans that we partner with and, uh, and we also, um, talk with them about the issues that affect them as veterans. And so we, you know, we do that work at the, at the legislature too. Okay. And I realize there are a lot of different opinions and things within uh, the Latino community. So I'm not going to uh, dub you this key one spokesman for the whole community, but, and I know there's different opinions out there, uh, but how are, how is law enforcement generally perceived in the Latino community here in Minnesota and Twin Cities and things like that. In general, how do you see that in the relationship between that? Right. So from what I've seen, I think it's a mix. Uh, you know, a lot of folks are have a negative, have had negative experiences with law enforcement because they, you know, they keep getting pulled over. Uh, obviously, if folks are not eligible for a driver's license and they get pulled over, they could end up. Um, you know, at the end, uh, uh, deported even just for for driving. Um, at the at the same time, there's also a sense of of need for security um, and order uh, within the community. So I think it depends on 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 who you're talking to within the the, the Latino community. Um, I've I, personally I've had both experiences, you know, negative and positive. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and I, I so I, I would say that it it varies depending on okay. depending on who you're talking to. Okay, so you brought up the dep- deportation, and once again, in the spirit of keeping it a hundred here, uh, let's talk a little bit about immigration. I I know that uh, you served with the some com- center that uh, supported uh, immigrants. Uh, why don't you tell me about the name of the organization you work for and the type of work you did for them? Yeah, so for about four years, I was the policy person for the um, for ILCM, the Immigrant Law Center of Minnesota, mm-hmm. and so we, you know, we did a lot of work with the state legislature, but also with with members of Congress. So we would fly to DC and do some lobbying there because immigration is is federal law, um, but there are also state laws that affect immigrants um, as well. And so we we did a lot of work around. Um, you know, the, the driver's license issue, right? Allowing uh, all Minnesotans to have access to a, a driver's license, regardless of immigration status. Um, we did work around uh, the English-only bills the, and, and, and around um, copycat laws that, would be, that were passing at the time in different states that were very anti-immigrant. Um, so we would do work here to try to block that from happening okay. just to try and to protect the community as much as we could. So explain to our audience, uh, what are the conditions or situations in these countries in South America and Central America that's driving, uh, immigrants, uh, to cross the borders and things like that and make these long, dangerous journeys and hook up with uh, traffickers and, 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 and things like that. People who are yeah. me. What's, what's driving this? Well, and let me put it in a more specific kind of personal way. What would uh, motivate a parent uh, to uh, send that child on that long journey? Uh, so give us, give our audience uh, some idea of what's motivating people to do that. 
Right. So several reasons, but, you know, I can tell you that nobody wants to leave their country. Nobody wants to leave their families behind. Nobody wants to send their kids alone uh, to who knows where and who knows how, right? And Mm -hmm. not knowing what's going to happen to them. Like no one would do that unless they truly did not have um, any other choice. Mm -hmm. Um, And so some of the reasons why that ends up happening is uh, poverty, crime, um, persecution, uh, you know, political Mm -hmm. persecution um, and, and corruption. And a lot of that, you know, not every, you know, not for in, it doesn't apply to all of those reasons, but, you know, a big part of why that exists in those countries is because of foreign policies that affect them in a negative way. Right. So Mm -hmm. we had NAFTA for many years that affected, had a very negative impact um, in the rural areas in those countries where people were losing their land uh, because they couldn't sell their corn, for example, in their within their own country, because American corn was cheaper than local corn, um, thanks to the subsidies um, that people benefit from here in the U.S. Uh, and so by them losing their land, they really had nothing left. So then they would come north to the U.S. to just do any type of work and be able to send money back. Um, so that's one example of how foreign policy affects those countries. So, Philippe, I'm into root cause solution and long term solution. What's mm-hmm. how do how do we fix that? Is it fixable? I mean, is it? Right. Well, and, and by the way, I do have a, 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 a some knowledge of the history of South America and Central America and and, and policy and things like that, U.S. policy and a lot of them. So, how is it fixable? And how do we fix it? And how long does it take? I think it would take a lot of work and, you know, both external and internal, right? So external, you know, we have to, you know, make sure that we're, our our foreign policies are set to help those countries and not take advantage of them. And internally, you know, those countries have to fix their own issues with crime and with corruption, Right. Because even right, if right. you can send all the help that, that, that you can to those countries, but if there's a lot of corruption, not, none of that is going to trickle down to those who actually do need it. Um, so it's 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 a tough road. <laughs> right. Right. So what do we say, Philippe, to those people who really care and about the people coming here and who's suffering and things like that? However, uh, they say, do it legally. Uh, come here legally. What do you say to the people say, look, we, we, we're for immigrants, but legal immigrants. Mm-hmm. What, let's, let's start that discussion. What do you say to people? So I have been told that many times. Like, oh, yeah, we support this, but as long as they do it legally. And, and the answer is, yeah, I think that if we had a, if we had a, a process that people could, you know, people could follow, it, to be, be here legally, mm-hmm. um, I believe that people would follow that process. But we currently don't have a process in place for legal immigration. Okay. And so 
you know, if there isn't a process for folks to follow, then you know, there's nothing that, that they can do. So, if, for example, if, you know, if they said, well, you have to have a driver's license to drive and you would say, OK, well, how do I get one? And then they would say, well, you can't. Then what, what do you do? OK, OK, Philippe. Uh, some people look at that as not saying the current situation as not saying you can't. It's just saying you might have to wait 10, 20 years for it. And, and, and we agree that that's broken. But if we use the uh, DMV analysis, uh, there are people standing in line at the DMV. And, well, yeah, uh, yeah. and uh, uh, what do you say to the people that because that's something in our human nature. We don't like to see people skipping the line, you know, that right. skip the line. So there's a lot of people standing in line and they're looking at these people, quote unquote, as they see a skipping line and getting away with it. What do you say to those people that say it's, it's unfair to the people who, regardless of how bad the process is, regardless how uh, bad the DMV is, these people are waiting in line and you're finding a back door uh, around the line. What do you say to the people who uh, have those type of perspective on what's going on? Yeah. So when you see people standing in line at the DMV, they're standing in line to wait their turn with their form in hand, right? Mm -hmm. To do whatever they need to do at the DMV. When it comes to immigration, there is no form. So even if they want to stand in line, there's nothing to stand in line for. Like there's no form, there's no process for legal immigration. So if they say, well, you know, you come here legally, there isn't a window. There's, there's no, there's no process that, that exists for people to come here legally. So, you know, they won't be holding anything when they're standing in line. Okay. If, if and, that makes and sense. I, yeah. I don't want to press you too much on this, but <laughs> people do see people taking the American citizenship test and coming in the country yeah. as legal citizen. So there gotta be some line or some form somewhere that somebody's, even though it's a bad process and the form might be, what do you say when people say, well, we see these other citizens doing it legally and they're taking the citizenship test and they're walking out of the whatever federal building, they're waving their American citizenship paperwork. What do you say to those people? Right. So, you know, for that to happen, you must have been or here in the U.S. legally already, either because you made oh, a, right. a, a, uh -huh. a, a U.S. citizen or because your parents uh, brought you and they sponsored you or a family member sponsored you or your job sponsored you, um, or you came from a country where uh, that, that is eligible for you to be, be a refugee or, um, you know, some, some conflict happened or a natural disaster happened in your country. And so then you were able to come here that way. Right now, all the only way that you can come here legally is situational, unless it's through family or marriage or through your work. Okay. Okay. And you did work at a law center. I think it was. What do you say to the people that says you got to obey the law? Everybody has to obey the law. Yeah, we yeah. we all we all have to obey the law, right? Like that's mm -hmm. I, I don't think anyone is saying no to that. Okay. Um, and so when it comes to immigration, I think that's when we then look at the 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 humane like the human side of things and why people are uh, deciding to to come here regardless, right? And that's because there just is no other way, and because of the poverty, because of the 
persecution um, that exists due to, again, we, we go back to the root causes. Right, right, right. Okay, and one last thing on that, though, because I always like to talk to solutions. Mm -hmm. Is this issue solvable? And if so, how do we solve it? Right. Uh, you know, it's again, it's not easy. You know, for many years, even from my time at the Immigrant Law Center of Minnesota, we were pushing for comprehensive immigration reform. Um, you know, some sort of process for the folks that are already here and a process for folks that want to come here so that they can, like you say, stand in line and wait their turn. Um, because then there, then there will be a process for them to follow. Um, and so that, that would be the only solution, I guess, okay. um, having some sort of, uh, um, reform to our immigration system that puts a process in place that, you know, for people. Yeah. And you might not know this, my background is technical and engineering. So the logical extension of letting them in is the question is, is there a limit to the number of people seeking asylum to it, or should we just let anyone who's poor and fleeing poverty into the country? Is it, I mean, it, as American citizen, taxpayers and job seeking, is there a limit? Uh, does it just whoever want to come, we let them in? And I know this, I know the words on the Statue of Liberty, so. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm assuming even when the French wrote that, no, the French didn't write it. They had a contest. <laughs> Whoever wrote that, uh, they didn't think that you're going to let anybody in the world just come into the country and as many as one and everybody that's suffering, uh, right. take them in. Because to me, Philippe, that would be like uh, your house and letting everybody in your house that need, that need a place to stay or food to eat, you just let them in. So how, how, what do you respond to that type of perspective of the situation that we're in? Right. No, we currently do have caps to the number of uh, refugee visas that are uh, extended. We do have caps on 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 the the situational, you know, uh, thing uh, uh, processes that I was mentioning. So um, it's it's not a free for all per se, or it, and it's not an open door policy. Like we have, we do have those systems in place. Uh, you've been very good on this. One last question on that: uh, Do we know how many? Uh, immigrants, uh, undocumented workers are here. I mean, I've been here in 11 million for the past 30 years. <laughs> I mean, I mean it, it, it just doesn't make common sense. That number has been stuck on 11 million for the last 30 years. Do we do we have any estimate of how many uh, undocumented or uh, illegal immigrants are in this country? Right. I, I've heard also from anywhere from 11 to 12 million uh also for years and you know the reason why it, it stays within that that range is because people come in but also at the same time people are being sent back and so That's sometimes you might uh -huh. Uh -huh. sometimes okay. you might hear people say well we're at a zero percent illegal immigration uh right now and that doesn't mean that no one's coming in it just means that people the number of people coming in is the same or less than the number of people being sent back. Okay. That's a logical explanation on a high level. Okay. Crush the numbers. That's, that's a good answer. Uh, so uh, thank you for being patient with us. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm wrapping it up right now. Is there anything 
or any area uh, that you'd like to comment on that I have not been uh, uh, thoughtful enough to bring up, uh, Philippe? And if so, uh, go for it. No, I mean, I think, uh, you know, just... Uh you know, for folks that are not familiar with, with our community, you know, Latinos are in, in different sectors of our workforce, you know, uh, you know, we're, we're heavily involved in agriculture. Uh, we are entrepreneurs, uh, politicians, uh, uh, professionals, doctors, you know, my, my daughter's doctor that has seen her since she was born is Latina. Um, for example, and, uh, you know, teachers, like, you know, one of my cousins is a teacher at a middle school, um, dentists, whatever, you know, professionals and, uh, in the trades as well. So, you know, folks are here. Um, we are one of the largest, uh, the fastest growing populations in the state. Uh, we're still a young population in Minnesota. Um, we haven't been here for very long in the state. Uh, as in other states, um, and the majority of the people are in Minnesota of Latinos are are on the on the younger side than the mm -hmm. older side. Um, but again, we we're growing fast, um, and you know, Latinos in the within the Latino community, we have an array of folks that are coming from different countries, uh, and so there's a lot of richness and culture associated with with our community, um, and so. You know, it's and and we're large contributors to our economy as well. Um, so, so yeah, just putting that out. What uh, positive message would you like to leave? I guess both for the Latino community in Minnesota and just uh, the communities in general. Well, you know, you were talking about uh, wealth creation, and, um, and and so I think that that's important for any community, right, to, mm -hmm. to get involved in, um, educating your, your, your young ones on, on how to create wealth and, 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 and financial literacy is, is crucial, especially for growing communities. Um, you know, I was talking to my daughter about that the other day, and, you know, we were having a conversation around money, and she asked me the like the best question she could have asked. She said, well, why don't they teach this in school? Oh, yeah. And I was, like, you know, yep, yep. It's like, exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. That's the that's the question to ask, right? Because mm -hmm. um, they just don't. So unless your parents know this and pass this on to you, you know, it's, it's up to you to learn on your own. And a lot of people don't. Yeah. My uh, three subjects that I have a pet peeve on that the schools don't teach is uh, financial management and finance and how that work, the law and legal things. Everybody should know that. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you right. think about it, uh, yeah. the two things that the government can take from you is your freedom and your money. And the schools, who are supposed to be a government uh, entity educating us, totally avoid that. And of course, the other thing is civics. I just have civics and history, I guess I'll combine those two things. And mm -hmm. I tell people, if you don't know your rights and know the Constitution, uh, you don't know when they're taking them away from you. And right. uh, so, yeah. I, I mean, I just see some serious consequences now of uh, people not being uh, knowing civics and things like that. In fact, I think I saw a poll uh, where it says most Americans can't pass the immigration test with just basic fundamental government type things. Most <laughs> Americans can't pass it. 
And if that's not an, an indictment on our public education system, I don't know what is. Uh, right. So a couple of, one other thing that I got to talk to you about, uh, Philippe. Uh, uh, I've been looking for the best uh, uh, Me Mexican or any Latino restaurant in the Twin Cities. Uh, and, I, and we'll stick with Mexican now because I'm going to call you up about the others. I know we got Brazilians. We got all kinds of uh, Latino restaurants here. But the best mm -hmm. Mexican restaurant that you would recommend in the Twin Cities. And before you answer that, I put in a plug where everybody sent me when I asked that question. <laughs> they sent me to uh, La Cucaracha on, uh, I think it's Dale over in St. Paul, or right off of Grand La, La Cucaracha. I think they are still there. But what would you recommend? Right. Uh, two or three recommendations. And next time you go in there, they better give you a free meal. So what, what would you recommend okay, as restaurants right. here to, for me to go if I'm looking for a good Mexican meal, uh, Felipe? Of course. Uh, yeah, I would definitely recommend going to uh, Maya Cuisine. There's one. There's They have a location in Northeast Minneapolis and one in Roseville. Mm -hmm. And going over to uh, Los Ocampo. They have several. Oh, yeah. Locations. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I've seen those. And Maya, you're spelling that M A Y A? Correct. Okay. Okay. I'm going to look those up. So, once again, uh, I genuinely uh, appreciate you being our guest this evening. I genuinely appreciate your uh, openness and honesty and just general uh, demeanor and answer these questions. And uh, any guests we have on here locally, I'm going to plan on meeting them sometime in person for lunch or something like that. Uh, so mm -hmm. before you go, as we wrap up, uh, if anyone want to contact uh, the Minnesota uh, Council on uh, Latino Affairs, how would they go about doing that? Uh, and let's assume that, you know, they're not the new generation that Googles everything. How would they go about <laughs> uh, doing that? Uh, right. The, well, they can go to their website, uh, mn.gov slash MCLA. Um, and so then that'll take them to the main website and they can choose staff, you know, like specific staff members and issues. And they can look at the uh, legislative agenda for the council okay. um, and the general number as well. Okay. So once again, really appreciate you being on here. You're, I'm assuming your daughter is 17. She's a senior in high school uh, she she's goes? almost 17 so she's a junior in high school right now okay okay well good luck on to her and you and blessings Thank to you. you and her and her graduating next year and mm -hmm. going on to bigger and better things and uh you might want to not put her in those turbo charge now just tease it yeah i know you guys bond uh over repairing cars and you're telling me about how you how you rebuilt engines and things like that and i love it so uh once yeah. again philippe thank you very much and thank you for educating me and the audience and everything we'll be uh, forever grateful so you have oh, a good evening time. okay you thank too. you all right thank you Lacey. all right